0: When this seven-figure agency owner surveyed 50 of his clients about what they valued when working with a small agency, the response was a surprise. It wasn't the price and it wasn't even quality. The top three things the clients of this seven-figure agency want to see are experience, communication and processes yes processes let me explain processes are guardrails by definition a guardrail is a barrier placed along the edge of something like a staircase to keep you from falling off the stairs your processes are guardrails and when clients learn how you uniquely create guardrails to support them on the road to getting results your processes add a tremendous amount of value for your clients stay tuned if you want to explore how processes can set you up for premium pricing Welcome to the Small But Mighty Agency Podcast. If you're a creative consultant or agency owner who wants to know what the roller coaster ride really looks like to grow your business from one to many, you're in the right place. My guest and I pull back the curtains on the realities of growing and running agencies of different sizes and what it takes to build a team. And if you're anything like me, you want more than the highlight reel. You want to learn from the mistakes of others so that you can stop short of making the same mistakes. I'm your host, Audrey Joy Kwan. I spend my days as a coach and consultant to multiple six and seven figure agency owners. For the last seven years, I've been behind the scenes helping people grow, lead and operate small but mighty agencies. Here at the Small But Mighty Agency podcast, we'll uncover what works and equally as important what didn't work to get these business owners to where they are today. Hey, Doug, it's wonderful to have you on the show today. Let's start by having you tell us about your agency.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Very nice uh, to be here and thanks for having me. As uh, you said, my name is Doug. I own a video production agency called Tripwire Media Group based in uh, the centre of Canada. And uh, we are a team of about 15 people that do all different types of corporate uh, storytelling and videos from training videos to you know documentaries, uh, animations, all that fun stuff. And uh, we do it for companies all across North America, mostly. How did you get started? Ha <laughs> You know, you know, my passion for video was actually kind of later into my twenties. I discovered editing uh, and and shooting as a real uh, new art form for me, where I used to be a, a musician. Um, and it just kind of organically started after uh, college. I actually worked in communications for a while, but I had someone ask me to start a company, which was really helpful because I probably wouldn't have done it myself. And we started a small photography, video and audio agency, having no idea what we were doing, which is probably why we started it in the first place. And uh, and that was in 2009. And so from there, it has evolved uh, to what it is uh, now
0: Businesses don't stay the same They go through evolutions But as a service business owner When you first start out It's hard to imagine the change your business will go through
1: So we, uh, we went from everything from trying to be a full agency To then removing photography and, and, and audio altogether I bought out my business partner uh, and then really just uh, went into video production, then started to add other things like, well, process, storytelling, strategy, all that kind of stuff so that we could grow. And then the need for it grew at the same time.
0: You went from being a full service agency offering everything to focusing on what I would say is a prioritized suite of services and making video your calling card. What inspired the trajectory?
1: I think it went from being kind of like desperate for work. You know, we were saying yes to anything that we could do to pay our bills to then being intentional and understanding what is it that I want to do and what is the impact that I want to have and where can we add value? We realized when we were kind of a generalist, you know, trying to do anything like websites and stuff, well, we were probably cutting out a lot of business with agencies who would who would prefer to work with us and allowed us to specialize and hone our craft rather than to you know try and do everything and then you've really got a foot in every single possible thing and you can't really become a specialist at all so we saw that opportunity and then specialized even in the type of video product that we make because even uh to this day or actually because of being at this day it's never been more competitive there's never been more people in this type of business but there's also never been uh, as strong a need for it as well
0: There is so much power in niching for an agency. When we typically think of niches, we think of who we want to serve or sell our services to. But as more skilled professionals enter the gig economy, a product niche becomes more important to stand out. Tell us more about choosing video as your product niche.
1: Yeah, I mean when we went full full into video, it was probably 2011. Making video in 2011 was probably enough, but then everybody was making video. Then you had to make good video, good video with purpose and video that would stick out uh, amongst all the other content that's being made. And so we had to actually really bring in a process rather than a show up and shoot and just create whatever kind of comes to mind. We had to focus on the goal, we had to focus on the audience, we had to understand how story works at a psychological and biological level so that we can actually break through the clutter and we can have an impact uh, and and, and create more value for our client rather than the Throw up a video, hope for the best, and not understand why it didn't work because we weren't really leading with intention or strategy.
0: Much like what you just said, when you have a product niche, it allows you to go really deep with that product to solve specific things, which leads to better results for your clients. Whereas if you are a small agency trying to do it all, you simply don't have the bandwidth to figure everything out. Mm -hmm. You mentioned you honed in on storytelling to solve client challenges.
1: It started with storytelling, the strategy of storytelling, which was understanding really uh, how to structure a video and how story has an input impact on us and what that does um, for someone watching it. It's why, you know, when we watch movies that are far too long or we binge watch something, it's because there's a good story. We buy things that are are, are probably far more expensive than what they're truly worth for the the way that they're built because of the story that they that, that tells us. And that was really interesting from kind of a social psychology standpoint. And so when I started to, it, I started to train on that myself. We uh, worked with um, Muse Storytelling out in Portland, which really... I mean, one of the best courses that really uh, kind of changed my professional life uh, since starting the company was it was adapting this process and understanding this for a few reasons, which was a how to do it. Having a process in general was really helpful because we didn't have a great one before. It was very just random or vague. And then it allowed us to uh, have a better offering to clients. Uh, So we actually then led very much with, hey, you guys want this? Well, let's see, let's understand what the story is and what the purpose is. And we would often come up with a better and different idea for our client. And so then we're also building a relationship while doing that, which adds a huge uh, value. So I was able to start charging more, A, because we're putting more time into it, but we're adding more value. So then that really helped my company from a financial level. It helped me add people. It helped me uh, grow and then also have a a structure or a, um, a process to be able to uh, keep things consistent no matter who works on it. We, we're scalable now if we want to be.
0: Let's talk about adding value. What does value look like for the clients you serve?
1: We our about 50 of our clients, and we said, prioritize what are the things most important to you uh, about working with a company like us. And it was actually experience, communication, and process uh, and price and quality of video were actually near the low part.
0: I love data. So experience, communication, and process ranked high. Sure. It makes sense that people are willing to pay the price tag for the experience. Experience isn't always about the number of years. When you have this product niche, you're rapidly delivering that product. So generating the knowledge and improving upon your proven processes falls into place faster. It's exciting to hear how your clients care about the process. Tell us more.
1: <laughs> it's funny. I was just reflecting on this with someone yesterday and you know before we had a process we we still got that question asked they're like okay well what is your process and we go oh well you know we talk now and then we show up and we get you know we shoot or we we'll write a script and we'll animate and then we give it to you and people go okay sure but people want to hear more than that especially when we're trying to deal with larger organizations everything from entrepreneurial to you know publicly traded companies They need to know how it's going to happen all the way through and what you're going to do, because the last thing they want you to do is take a project and then come back with something later on. They want to know what is it you're going to do to reach the goal in the same way that if you're going to climb a mountain, you probably don't just start at the bottom of the mountain and say, I'll see you at the top. You're probably going to go, well, we're going to go over here and then over here and then over here and over here. here." So you need to be building because at the end of the day, even in business to business, trust is one of the biggest things. People could choose on price every time they're going to choose something that probably doesn't work for them that well. Or it could be a terrible experience, even if it's good. They want to work with people that will make this easy, as, as easy as possible or as understandable as possible. Because we actually say, like, if at any point you don't know where a project is at, then we've actually failed you. You should never have to ask where it's at. And people really appreciate that because they usually have someone else to answer to as well.
0: You mentioned that prior to having a process that it was pretty loose in terms of what you share with a client and how you work with them. Yeah. Now that it's not so loose, can you give us a better idea of what that looks like?
1: Whether we're making video, sorry, a live action video or uh, animation, it starts with uh, creative discovery. It then goes into uh, getting a, a quote or a budget approved. Uh, and then it goes into a, a creative kickoff, which is getting all the stakeholders in at the beginning so we can, A, understand what are we doing, what are we making and how, but also what is the goal? And is it the same for everybody? Because if you don't have that discussion up front, that's where things fall apart later on when a decision maker comes in and goes, this isn't what I thought it would be. And you're like, well, you were never even there. Uh-oh. So then we go into uh, creative development, into pre-production, and then into production and post-production and delivery. Um, and then if there's uh, a digital marketing strategy for it, then we go into execution and, and uh, uh, measuring and, and that kind of stuff.
0: I think that a great video relies quite heavily on great storytelling, like you mentioned, and the creativity around that. How did you take that portion of your process and turn that into something that a team could follow?
1: Well, the funny thing is I, uh, I kind of say a bunch of times is that people think that a process will actually choke creativity and actually does the opposite. It actually creates constraints that uh, and, and, and sets not even that it creates constraints, but it, it sets uh, goals for you to then be able to reach. And so you need to find the right creative that's going to do that in the best way. And so when you have those parameters, it allows you to actually rather than just make something completely aimless, it allows you to come up with bigger and better work. As a result, you know, we just did a, a commercial campaign that is for a furniture company. And if we were given really no parameters, we probably wouldn't have felt safe going in any direction. And we've all seen a bunch of really boring furniture commercials before. But we understood the audience was millennials. We knew that it was trying to get them to talk about uh, or, or uh, the the idea was about how they uh, feel when they buy furniture, new furniture for the first time. And we made a really silly a video series about that, kind of a fake infomercial style. And uh, it, it it won national and local awards for it. And uh, that was because we had a process that we put to it so that we understood how we could achieve that. The other thing is it really justifies the creative because if you can't explain why you want to do it in this way and who you're talking to and how it's going to work, it's really hard to get very nervous people who are spending a lot of money on board with that idea. Yeah.
0: What I hear you say is your process helps people connect creativity back to specific KPIs. Creativity isn't always tangible and can be difficult for non-creative people to understand.
1: Yeah. We have a a client that uh, is a director of marketing and a big, big, huge uh, company publicly traded. And we did this video. It was very, very rooted in storytelling. The whole purpose was uh, corporate uh, was the culture of their team in one of their facilities in uh, the United States. And it was very, very much meant to be an emotional piece to get really people excited and and feel uh, why they work at this place. And it went to the CEO to get final kind of sign off. And he wanted to uh, add a bunch of things, a bunch of information. And uh, this, the director knew us and had worked with us long enough and knew our process that she actually said to her own boss, no, because that will ruin the film. And here's why. And so she came back and told me that after, and she's like, It was because of your process that we understood it. We understood why we were making what we were making that I was actually had the confidence to say no to him. And then he went, Okay, makes sense. And it went wildly successful to the point they now actually show the video for onboarding any new staff at a bunch of their facilities. So that's when the process can preserve creativity because before we had it, it allowed everyone to throw everything in the kitchen sink in it. Oh, hey, while we're making this video, if we're talking about that, let's put in our core values and let's, uh, let's put in how many employees we have and let's put all this stuff in. And you didn't have the wherewithal or the ability to go, no, we shouldn't, because they would go, well, why? And you go, ah, because we shouldn't. But if we go, well, here's our structure, here's our story arc, and here's our audience, and here's all this pre-work we did, and then they can go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, yeah, that's why we're doing it. So it really helps guide not only our direct uh, direct reports, but the people that they report to. Because then it gives them something to stand on. It gives them a the structure. What
0: you've done is you, you've you built champions for your process. You take back what was once subjective and can communicate to their people objectively. The result of that, of educating your clients on process, creates a better end deliverable and proactively addresses scope creep.
1: Yeah. I mean, like back when we first started, it often was like you would start with this great idea that you and the client loved and it would be all awesome. We're going to make this like two or three minute video that talks about this and gets their... Their audience excited, and then (laughs) fast forward a few months later, and you've got this five minute, six minute video that, like the 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 executive is like, this is perfect, and you're sitting there like, what happened? Like this is this is for no one but them. This isn't interesting. It's way too overloaded, and like no one's gonna watch past the two minute point. And so when we started seeing that and understanding that and saying that, like, no, it's not for you. It's for them, and you know, finding clients to. A agree to that we we've also been able to grow and learn to you know to find the red flags or to walk away from the the clients that are just like i don't care we're doing it my way or the highway great find a different car to go on that highway with you because it's really we're not interested in that um there was a pretty pivotal one where you know it was a 15 minute video and we changed the script and he changed it back to a 15 minute video and we basically just reshot what he want what he had done before and s or in hd and we're like, oh, we're not doing this again. It was at a pig eugenics farm. So real fun stuff. We're like, what are we doing? This is not what we, this is not what we signed up for. <laughs>
0: Did you know that I have a free team growth roadmap? Imagine if you didn't spend all day every day in the weeds of running your business. That can mean more flexibility, more freedom, less overwhelm. I created the team growth roadmap to help my clients gain direction on the strategic systems and leadership actions for a streamlined business and a self-managing team to grow your business. Inside the roadmap, I share my compass method an acronym for each step of the roadmap to get you out of the, weeds of running your business and help you have a small but mighty team that gives you more freedom and flexibility you can get all the details over at audreyjoykwan.com. that's a-u-d-r-e-y-j-o-y-k-w-a-n.com or click the link in the show notes right there in your podcast app back to the show What are some things you do in your business to identify your ideal clients versus what you just described, which was someone who's really just not the right fit?
1: Yeah, we have like, when we start, when we uh, engage with a client for the first time, we actually, before we start any work with them, we have kind of a three-point process where we really vet them at the beginning, which is a short phone call, and we want to make sure that we, A align with each other that we we seem like, you know, <laughs> relatively nice people, people who are passionate about what they do. We also are actually vetting timeline and budget um, because realistically, just not everyone has the right mindset for how much to spend. And we don't want to go down a road and waste anyone's time. We then have another call or it evolves into a call of creative discovery where we're really digging down deep and we're starting to understand, you know, is this, uh, again, a good creative fit? And then we have a pitch meeting where rather than just tossing it over the fence and going here's your here's your quote, we we insist on getting in front. You know, luckily now with Zoom and Teams, it's really really easy. And we go through our process and we go through options and we explain the why behind everything, and we get really good feedback and we have really really good turnaround numbers on it. Um, but and a lot of people going like this you know, not to pat myself on the back, but like a lot of people like this presentation was amazing. This is so helpful when we know that a lot of our competitors are going, you know, sending one pager quotes uh, with just numbers and going, Hey, let us know when you, want to start. And and, uh, we're adding value that way.
0: When you look at the sales process, more like an education process, it changes the conversation. Educating and explaining the creative process is highly valuable. Most people who are not creatives don't understand how much work and value there is in generating ideas. Creativity is complex and helping people visualize that helps them understand what they're paying for.
1: Yes. Yeah, exactly. Because if we literally just threw a price page, I mean, a lot of times we come in at the highest quote quotes and, and we have to show that value. And at the end of the day, when we're working with business, which, you know, goes back to where we're talking about, you know, how do you add value and add add, a margin is that I akin it to when we had a, I had a leaking roof and, uh, and we had to get it fixed. And I got three quotes and um, the highest one was the most credible person. And he explained the process more, where another one was like dicey and the other one was kind of forgettable. And I went, well, this is my roof. I probably want to make sure that this is done right, because uh, I also want to make sure that I'm not having to fix it in two more years, which is a good analogy for, again, kind of cheaping out on a video. It's very costly to do. It might be costly to do it right. It costs a lot more to do it wrong. And it uh, whether that's in money and time and frustration. So when we need to, we really need to swing for the fences.
0: It obviously took you time to figure out how to create a business that isn't based on a price comparison with another business. Like you just said, you oftentimes don't come in as the cheapest quote. In fact, you might come in as the highest quote, and that's a positioning. And so it sounds like you've been working on that positioning for quite some time. I would like to know Obviously, you didn't wake up one day and just arrive here. So I would like to know... In terms of moving into that higher price positioning and understanding what it took to get there, what would you say was the trajectory for you to get here?
1: Yeah, it's probably a combination of things. I mean, obviously, um, practice and and experience. I, I never went to any, I never took any entrepreneurial courses or any business courses or, but I did get a lot of coaching. You know, actually, funny was the f- funny story about it is that at the beginning of all this, I was the bumbling idiot who couldn't really uh, add anything to a, a pitch uh, when it was my business partner doing it and so I just had to get more and more confident with our process and uh, and and confident with knowing that it would work that I could come in and basically answer almost any question that was thrown at me, which is where I'm at so there's a confidence in a dare I say, charisma to it, to to instill that confidence for your, your client. So that's a part of it. There's just being hungry and learning and, and, and seeing what works and what doesn't work. And then reading up from other people and their experiences and through uh, different communities um, and through mentorship.
0: Speaking of what doesn't work, let's talk about something you've done or experienced that hasn't worked.
1: You know, a big mistake that I made in the last little while is a, is, is, where I have this habit of this kind of weak point in in my business acumen, which is assuming things will go well, things that haven't been defined and going, it'll work itself out. And it almost always doesn't. I almost like, I swear I jinx it. And so, you know, we, we got into the largest job that we've ever done. We, I was optimistic on not covering all my bases on how that could bite me later on. It was a one-year process or one-year project. And then COVID came in. And again, I kind of avoided it a little bit rather than dove in and tried to you know, triage any of the problems. I kind of just went, I'm sure it'll be fine. And so I very much learned to trust that spidey sense in me when I feel that something might not be going well here. It's not that you should just start micromanaging every single little thing, but I'd rather go in and go, Hey, I just want to check in on this. Is this okay? And then they go yes or no. And I asking for an explanation or some detail is not a bad thing to be reassured versus assuming that it's fine. And then realizing that it all went to, uh, uh went to garbage. And, uh, you know, because at the end of the day, who pays for it? I do. I lost a lot of money on this project. That's still not actually done. And we have fixed it and we've internalized it. We got the right people on it. We're finishing it. It's good now but boy oh boy i mean i probably lost tens of thousands of dollars on some bad assumptions and not paying enough attention or at least getting reports and avoiding uh the uh, the conflict of it which is what i was doing so you know uh, making sure that you're empowering your team to be able to do something but at the same time, trusting your gut when something doesn't feel right.
0: On the topic of team, now that you've grown your team to 15 people, what have you learned for yourself about managing a team? And how do you do things differently today than you might have done just five years ago?
1: Great question. I, um, I, you know, I started growing the team based on basically the idea of find the things that you don't want to do and then find someone else to do it. And I'd probably add to that, find the things that you don't think you're very good at whether you like that, like to do it or not, and then find someone to do it. I can't remember who it is. I think it was maybe Vern Hirsch who says, uh, you know, be the dumbest in the room. And uh, that's where I think a lot of smaller entrepreneurial uh, companies get in trouble, especially with hiring, is they want to be the best. Uh, and so they don't want to hire anyone who's better than them. I was not the best shooter in the world. I was not the best animator. And I started hiring people who were better than me at that. That allowed me to focus on doing the things that I loved, which was, um, you know, at the time editing, but also client relationships and building that kind of side of things. And so, you know, we would get more work and that meant I needed to hire more people. And then I needed someone to help me with operations and because I didn't really love that as much. And again, allowed me to be feeling fulfilled in my job and not bogged down by the things I didn't like. So that kind of evolved, which was really nice. In terms of then how I treated them, boy, oh boy, yeah. I mean, it used to be, not that I was ever, like I I used to be try to be really, really accommodating, but there's still this mentality of like, you work for me. And I also didn't know how to respect people's time in the same way that I didn't respect mine. So I kind of went, hey, I'm working my butt off all the time here. I'm working 12 hours a day you guys should work 12 hours a day too, because I'm working just as hard as that. And it's like, no, it's different. It's a different relationship. They don't have the same stake in this as you do, being that it's your company. And when things go really well, you benefit in lots of different ways. They're just working a job or at least... At, at, at that base level, they are so figuring out how I can give back and add value uh, is is the biggest thing that I've tried to do. I tried to make sure that I'm giving people time as much as possible. That I am trying to figure out how they can grow both in their personal lives and professional lives. So we we, we put a lot back into education, put you know a lot of culture events and stuff like that. Where it's really like it's not so much that I'm working. I think Richard Branson said they don't work for you, you work for them. And and is finding that balance where you're not just, you know, obviously, you're not just accommodating to whatever they want, but you're listening to them and you're checking in with them and you're hearing them. And at the same time, you're respecting your management or your C-suite or your executive level and empowering them and not you know, uh, circumventing or or chopping them off at the knees with their power. So I've learned a lot of that in the last five years. It's been incredibly helpful, um, especially for, you know, we've had challenges with retention because of COVID, like a lot of companies. And now you want to make sure that you're just adding as much value as possible to the people who work there, because then they put in so much more. And it's not just a job. anymore.
0: Doug, thank you so much for being an open book today. Before we close, what keeps you inspired and at your best?
1: You know, it's funny. It's like, uh, what keeps me inspired is, is the fact that I'll never be done. Uh, and that's sometimes the thing that creates, uh, anxiety as well. Like, you, I can never in this industry just go, like, figured it all out. So like, you know, you got to, on one side, you got a bit of imposter syndrome. On the other side, you're always hungry to learn. And uh, in the video world, in the creative world, you're never going to get no one's ever going to go. Great. We finished all the creative. There's always opportunities and gaps and 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 ways to to way, ways to improve and be different. And then on the other side of that, too, is that the impact that we make when someone says you nailed it or you made me cry or this did exactly what I needed to do or better That that just fills the tank for me. And I just want to go and do that for more people. So I need to be, you know, even going back to premium pricing, if we're going to be at the top of our game uh, and and one of the higher uh, tiered companies, then we have to continue to prove that and and add bigger value. So there's also the kind of a bit of uh, I would say it's a balance of fear and passion um, that we need to be at the top of our game. And so that keeps me hungry and uh, keeps me excited.
0: Thank you, Doug. And where can people find you?
1: Uh, yep. Yeah, you can go to www.tripwiremedia.com. I think most of my contact stuff is there uh, or Doug Darling on LinkedIn uh, at Tripwire. Uh, you, I think my linkedin.com slash Doug Darling, I think I actually got the, the first name on there. So uh, the original name for Doug Darling there.
0: Thank you so much, Doug.
1: <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's been a blast. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to the Small But Mighty Agency podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes. It would mean the world to me. Or send a screenshot on Instagram while tagging me at Audrey Joy Kwan.